I'd like to welcome everybody back to Alabama Care. Today we have Mrs. Marlise Delgado of United Ability, and we are going to be talking about the signing of the ADA and what that means for us as a community in celebrating uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. At this point, I'd like to hand it over, Mrs. Delgado, if you would introduce yourself. Well, I'm Marlise Delgado, as he said, and I'm a physical therapist at United Ability. Um, I'm the outpatient coordinator and the lead physical therapist here. And for those of our audience, uh, Mrs. Delgado has been on with us before, kind of in a group setting uh, at United Ability, and we were talking about accessibility at that point. One of the things we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview as I understand how ADA has come to um, and what that means. And then Mrs. Delgado is gonna dive more into the accessibility part of our communities and our everyday life here. So <clears throat> you've probably heard ADA talked about in the disability community. And I am not a lawyer, don't know all of the law, so don't take everything I say uh, as scripture. But uh, kind of how we got here is through the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that was passed in Congress. And there was a specific point of that uh, which was the 504 part, which basically said that federally funded buildings and organizations could not discriminate against individuals with disabilities. And from that, we, uh, from 1973 to uh, 1990, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was put into law and signed by President Bush at that time, the ADA of 1990 says, or has a long list of accomplishments, including protecting against employment discrimination. Um, but one of the big things that came out of that was our physical landscapes and making sure that our physical landscapes are architecturally accessible for individuals with disabilities. Um, and that's a, a big part of being involved in a community and being a part of your local community is able to get around and, and go to meetings, go to work uh, and access the greater community just as anybody able-bodied would be able to. Um, so, Mrs. Delgado, uh, I'd like to just ask a little bit about what, what accessible communities, what does that mean? Well, if you look at the law, and I, and I also, I'm not an expert on that law. Um, one of the things, and I'll answer your question, but one of the things that I, I do know about that law and that um, Section 504 from 1973 that I thought was interesting is a lot of that work was done by people with disabilities themselves. They were the ones who fought for this. And I think that's really crucial because I think we really need more input from people with disabilities. They are truly the experts in what they need. And then I think your question was, you know, what does it look like? It's really just about removing barriers. I think it's less about what we add in and what, and more about what we remove. We just remove barriers so that people with disabilities can access what everybody else already has access to. Mm. I appreciate you bringing up that point that most of the legislative advocacy was from the community, from individuals with disabilities. And um, I, I've had no, numerous people say that I need to watch Crip Camp, and I haven't watched the entire thing, but I was watching YouTube videos of it last night. And the work that they were able to do and the, and the relationships that they built at this camp and the work that they did after is astronomical. And I hear stories about 
individuals um, who use wheelchairs cl uh, crawling up steps of courthouses um, of municipalities to, to show that you know these types of things aren't accessible to us and I, I, I don't think anybody maliciously says we're trying to design something that isn't accessible, but unless you think about it and bring individuals to the table that have other points of view uh, and other experiences, you're not going to get a universally designed environment, uh, whether that's a building or a park or a playground, any of those types of things. Um, and that, that change in that talk started happening um, in the 70s and out of the Rehabilitation Act of 504. Um, and so on. But I but, think that's historically been the problem. And I think that's what it takes in every situation. It's people in, in our, in this specific conversation, it's people with disabilities being included in the conversation. So I think when you're looking at accessible communities, it's getting a variety of people with disabilities involved in the conversation. So, you know, if you're interested in making your community more accessible. You know, I've had different organizations contact me about helping them and I love it that people care and they want to make it more, their, say their building or their organization more accessible. Well, I'm, I'm one person and I'm lucky that it, at this point in my life, I do not use a wheelchair. I, I don't have any obvious barriers, but so, you cannot ask me by myself. You need to have a group of people. You need to have people who have different current barriers to your facility and have them involved in the conversation because you're going to get a variety of inputs. And that's what it takes to really make something truly accessible. I, I don't know what it's like to access a building with a variety of wheelchairs. And I don't know what it's like to be to not be able to see when I'm going in a, a, a building or a facility. So you, you really need a variety of inputs of people who have a variety of needs. And you mentioned that um, some organizations will reach out to you and say, hey, we're designing a new building or we would like to do better in this space. How does that process work for maybe an employer or an organization? So they'll, they'll just contact you and, and then what, what goes on from there? Well, no one's contacted me about a, a new build. I think when people have a new build, you know, I'm sure they're architects. There's lots of architects who are experts in this. So they usually have architects for that. Most of the time when people contact me, they have an existing facility that they want to um, remove barriers from. So mm -hmm. it's always been word of mouth. Either I've worked with a child that is in their facility or they've heard about our agency and they found me through there through that way and they've asked um, me to come out and just look at things mm -hmm. um and there's there's and i've approached it different ways depending on the facility i've looked at several different schools um a, a lot of the times i've been working with a child who was going to a, a school a, a private school and several private schools have asked me to come out and look at their facilities and we have some wonderful people in our community who really care about the children who go to their schools and they want to make sure it's accessible for them. Hmm. So I've gone out and I've just looked at their facility for that child in particular, because these, these schools were not accessible for a full range of kids. 
but mm -hmm. all they've said is, look, we have this child right now and we want to make sure that we can serve them well. So all I've done is I've looked specifically for that child and, and said, okay, I'll help you remove any barriers for this particular child. So there's gotcha. been several so cases where I've done it like that because mm -hmm. it's very difficult what for these existing buildings to remove all the barriers to make things fully accessible for everything. Yeah, it's almost like you'd want to start off from the ground up again, um, but you're trying to make do with <clears throat> with what we have, uh, some historic buildings uh, maybe. What are some, so you go into examples like a school that, uh, maybe a private school, um, do you notice that there are consistently one or two things that are like huge barriers that you're like, okay, you have to do this. This is going to make a world of difference. Well, you know, it honestly depends on the person, but a lot of these older buildings have stairs. Those are, that's a huge problem. It's not only for people with disabilities. What we're finding more and more is stairs are a barrier just for older adults or yeah. for something I pointed out to a lot of these schools is they're a barrier. If you have a typical child who has a, a, a broken leg, it's, you know, you can have kind of a, a temporary disability that impacts you. So, a, a lot of times stairs are a huge barrier that's very, very difficult to work around. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that we talk about are, are there other pathways that we can work around? Is there, is there, a, is there a, a back door? Is there another way we can access this building? Sometimes those are very, very difficult and sometimes an obstacle we can't always get around because you don't want to make it so that the child with the disability, and I'm going to say child a lot because that's primarily who I work with, that they, that in order to get from A to B, they have to get there after everybody else. Hmm. That isn't really making things fully accessible. If they have to be 10 minutes or 20 minutes late to everything, because they've got to go all the way around the back of a building, that isn't ideal either. Hmm. And a lot so, of these, um, are some of the um, solutions, are they more stair lifts or is it more elevators or ramps? Ramps are usually the, the best. Um, it's usually a cheaper option. It's something that you can get a community behind. You can make it, you know, you can make it out of wood. Um, that's usually where we start off with, especially if it's not too many stairs, you can just start off with ramps. Um, once we've had a couple of schools who've said, you know what? we can for this child for this year we can just switch classrooms and instead of her classroom being on the second floor this is early enough in the process we're just going to make her classroom be on the first floor and we're going to switch up and all of those we're just going to swap those teachers i had one school yeah. do that and they said we're just going to switch floors and those we're going to switch these two teachers and mm -hmm. that was a that was a great option yeah and that's and a lot nobody of else that suffered yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just saying nobody really suffered from that. Yes, people had to move, but that really helped out that child. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you might not have thought of unless you have a student or a child uh, in your classroom that needs access uh, to first floor uh, and can't get you up the steps that way. And I, I would like to say there are, I believe, a number of opportunities for organizations, schools, um, businesses to receive some financial help. Uh, if they are going to make some modifications to the environment. Is that correct? Well, I have 
haven't had a lot of luck in finding funds for organization yeah. for organizations. Um, I have found some checklists though. And, and it's interesting when you look, when you look online, you can find a lot of checklists. Yeah. And the, um, a, there's one that's ADA, where is it? ADA.gov, RACheck.pdf is one of the ones. And it's a checklist that goes through kind of easily removable barriers that can help mm. you kind of go through kind of easy things that you could do just to make your facility a little more um, inclusive. And it, it's pretty user-friendly. And so, so companies can go through and just do some simple things because some of the things like the stairs and the ramps are sometimes a little harder to deal with. Sometimes it's a fairly simple thing that people don't even realize. You know, they can look at their bathroom and just say, oh, I didn't realize a wheelchair needed X amount of room to maneuver around. If I just took these two stalls and made them one, now somebody with a disability can fit in here. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not as complicated as it has to be. They just have to have the realization. And sometimes these checklists help them do that. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, eventually we're all going to need uh, those types of accessibilities if we are able to live long enough. I was speaking with Dr. Graham Sisson, Governor's Office on Disability, and we were talking about universal housing. And my and he was like, you know, every house that's being built should be universally designed. And my initial thought was, well, if I'm building my house, I don't want people to tell me how I have to build it. I want to build it how I want it. And he goes, yeah, but if you live long enough, you're going to have to go through and renovate it. And he's like, eventually you're going to need these things. And I was like, yeah, that's true. That's, that's a really good point. Maybe they should make it so that every house has to be universally designed there. Uh, and it was a kind of a change in thinking for me. So I believe that through all new, you know, all the apartments going up downtown Birmingham, all new buildings, um, you know, they should be built universally designed for everybody to be able to enjoy them there. And in order to do that, you got to get everybody to the table. Excuse me. Yeah. And <laughs> excuse me. Because I think the key is if you are lucky, then you will need accommodations because that means that you've had a, a very long life because you yeah. you'll have lived long enough that you will need some of these accommodations yourself. And it's one of the things that I keep telling people you never know when you might need when you might acquire a disability or someone in your family might acquire one this is something that could happen to you at any point in your life either to you or somebody that you love so this may be something that you that becomes very personal to you at any point in your life mm -hmm. so you might as well start caring about it it's funny it's something that i notice wherever i go Every time I go to a store, I notice the parking spots. I notice how easy it is to get in and out of a store. I even when I go, um, if I go to a VRBO and I stay somewhere and I'm doing the review, I always note how accessible it was in my review, mm. just based on my opinion. And I'll put in there, I'm not in a wheelchair, but I noticed the doorways were very narrow and just little things like that. I always add in there just in case somebody with um, who has a disability is looking at that place or I'll put, oh, there was three steps to go in. It's just little things that you can do that kind of help other people out. I imagine it's something where when you start to take notice, you can't help but not uh, but not notice it. Yeah, I see it. I see it everywhere. 
I see it. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. And, and something else that's kind of on my soapbox with the, the ADA, I think it's a great thing. It's a great thing we have this law, but it's not perfect and it's it doesn't cover everything. If you look at it, and I have read parts of it, it's a it's a big law. I've not looked at everything, but one of the things that it says is that if it doesn't cost too, I'm paraphrasing, and and I'm not a lawyer, that if it doesn't cost too much, that you have to do some of these things, that you have to remove these barriers, and it and some of these barriers, the way they're written, it's it seems like it's written for and a, a certain type of wheelchair, maybe for an adult. Well, not everybody is in a wheelchair and not everybody has a certain size wheelchair. So wheelchairs for children are very different sizes and different people in wheelchairs have very different abilities. Some people can get in and out of their wheelchairs on their own. Some people can't at all. So what a provision in the ADA that might be helpful to one person may be not helpful at all to a whole vast array of other people. So I think it's a great starting place, but there's still a, a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think you need to really, as I said before, include lots of other people and just be open to asking people and be not afraid to communicate with people and saying, if you're out and about, ask people, you know, what can I do to help you? How can I assist you? You know, how can I make this more accessible for you? And we're, and I'm primarily talking about physical disabilities. We really haven't even touched on people who've got visual issues or hearing issues or sensory issues. Or the invisible um, <clears throat> disabilities yes. that I'm starting to hear more about. Um, I'm going to acknowledge chat here really quick. Uh, Jonathan Hornsby says, one way to make every facility more accessible, changing table, required in men's restrooms. Dads change diapers too, whether the child is disabled or not. Not ADA necessarily, but it just gets to me every time I have to consider changing my child's diaper on a public restroom floor. That is something, um, and uh, Mr. Hornsby says, hi, Marlies. Um, <laughs> hi, Jonathan. <laughs> That's a huge, huge issue. And that is a big quality of life problem for people. Because if you have a child or a young adult that you care for who needs their diaper changed, where are you going to do it? If they're 10 or 12 or 14 or 20, where are you going to change their diaper? You can't put them on those infant changers. So that, and you can't go out in public if there's nowhere to change them. Yeah. So yeah, that a whole host of other issues. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> how do we, how do we go about doing this? Um, you know, we always hear legislative advocacy speaking to our representatives. Um, we can look back on the, those that helped pass this legislation and what they had to go through. Um, but what would you say to somebody that's frustrated? A, a big thing that I hear is in the parking, um, in the parking spaces, the cars being too close. And if you have a side ramp, how am I supposed to get out of this van? But let's say I'm very frustrated that how do I go about as an individual or family member uh, getting that changed? I think we need more family members kind of involved in the legislative process. We've got to get, we've got to get them talking to the people who make the changes. And I think 
the, the legislators need the stories. They need the, the little scenarios of what happened. The, you know, and I hear the stories all the time from times from the families, but I think they need to hear about the time that you went to the grocery store and you came back out and somebody had parked right beside you and you couldn't, you couldn't get in your vehicle. So you had to, you know, you had to pull out into the, into the pathway of other cars to try to get your child in. I don't think they understand how serious it is until they hear the whole little story about what it took to get your child back into the, the vehicle or yeah. how your child doesn't handle heat well. And it was, you know, 95 degrees that day. So you had to sit in the grocery store for an hour, you know, waiting on someone to leave. They don't understand how it impacts your life. I think you need to take the time to, to contact these people and give them the stories in your life and let them see how it really impacts you. Yeah, I'd say reach out to your local representatives and work your way up from there. Sending videos, emails, sending handwritten letters if that's if that's uh, possible. Making a relationship. That's a big thing. <clears throat> We've been a part of the Partners in Policy Making Alabama doing some of their audio and video. And they've had legislators come in and speak to the group. One of the things they say is, you know, you have to build that relationship. We're people just like you guys. We don't know everything. So we kind of rely on you for a little bit of education. Um, just because we don't know about it doesn't mean we don't care about it. It just hasn't been brought to light for us. Um, and not everybody shares the same experiences. So we need uh, people from all parts of the community to speak up. And it's almost like the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Uh, you have to make your, your challenges known. Um, but also, you, I, you can't just say what's wrong. You have to come with a potential solution uh, to work together. Mm -hmm. I, I heard, uh, I used to have a friend that uh, whenever he would hear somebody just complaining, you're just complaining. You're just, you're not presenting any solutions. I'm not being a part of this. <laughs> Come back to me when you have a solution and we can start working toward it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the importance. Why it's so very important for our houses, our schools, our community to be accessible. Well, one of the things is, and I don't know the exact numbers, but people with disabilities are very underrepresented when it looks, when you look at just how many of them go to school, how many of them are in the workforce. And when you look at our economy, that that's hurting everyone. Mm. There's so many people with disabilities who have great potential to work, to contribute to society, and we are missing out when they're not in the workforce. Also kind of on the, the flip side for businesses, what are businesses wanting? More customers. They're missing out if you are not making it so more customers can get in your door. So there is no negative to making things more accessible. You, I mean, you're making it so that you can have more quality workers and more, more customers with cash. I think about that for us as an organization because we do most of our stuff online. And so making sure that our web page is accessible, uh, mm -hmm. making sure that our videos and one of the nice things about the space that we work in is we use a lot of Facebook and YouTube and these different social platforms. They have uh, some of that accessibility built in, whether it's closed captioning um, or you can download the transcripts, those types of things that make it very nice for us uh, to kind of piggyback on their efforts. Um, 
but that's always something in the back of our minds too is is our website you know there was just a talk last week at innovation depot held by adrs about accessibility websites and apps and stuff like that so always trying to keep that in the forefront of that mind and i'd also say kind of the importance of of accessible design especially for young kids is 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 being a part of your peer group like if you're friends and buddies with everybody but then they go to maybe watch a movie or they go to the playground and you can't be a part of that it seems like it would put a separating mentality on you that could um wouldn't be good long term and so you from a young age you don't want there to be anything in that child's mind thinking uh, i can't do that i can't be a part of that i can't play and have fun like all of my friends are um and what are some things what are some things at the house that parents can do for their children at a young age to keep that sense of learning and exploring i've heard i'm not a father i don't have kids but i've heard that that part of a child's process of of crawling around and figuring out their environments is so huge what are some things that we could do at home um, for our young children for um, families with kids with special needs to keep them involved. Yeah. Yep. Well, one, one of the things they can do is they can kind of be in control of the situation and maybe have the friends come over to their house because you're going to assume that their house is going to be more accessible or that mm -hmm. they're going to know where the accessible playground is if it's a very young child. So they might be the one to extend the invitation and say, oh. let's go play here so that they can set it up where it's somewhere where they know their child can access the environment. So kind of take a that, little bit more of a lead there. Yeah, yeah. So they can they can be the ones that control the environment because usually that's the biggest problem is the environment is not as accessible. So if they, and, and sometimes there's, there's surprises, you know, the friends might be perfectly willing. They want them to come over and play, but you don't know that the deal with the friend's house and the friend's parents might just be clueless about it. And they're like, yeah, come over and play. But the, the mom of the kid with the disability is thinking, I don't know how we've, your wheelchair is going to fit in their, their doorway. So sometimes it's easier just to say, come over to our house first, have them over, let them play in your space, you know, let the kids explore together and then form a relationship with the other parent and kind of educate them slowly about your child's needs, about their wheelchair, their walker, whatever equipment they have, about how they get around and educate that that family and say, you know, he needs a, a little bit more room to move around in his walker, or his wheelchair or help. And, you know, do you have steps at your house, that kind of thing, and then ease into it that way and then bring them into other environments because it's got to you're going to have to educate the other people as well yeah i was going to yeah, say I think, I think you just you have to have that control first if you control the environment then then educate the other people and then kind of go into other spaces yeah and take it as an opportunity to educate others um not as that they aren't uh, willing to work with you but uh, as a breaking down barriers yourself for others to help them see now, you mentioned that you, you go into schools a lot on an individual basis. So kind of a background, you have students, uh, kids that come to you for physical therapy and they say, I'm having a little difficulty accessing all of my environments at school or at home or in the community. 
outside of school, what are some other specific environments that you will be a part of helping that child and helping that community? Well, we have, you know, more and more over the years, the kids that I see are involved in a lot of different things. Um, and, and here at our preschool, we have a lot of different, we have, you know, dance and karate and soccer that come here. And what's nice about that is all those groups, because they come to our preschool, they um, agree to include all types of kids. So we have lots of opportunities to, to work with those staff members. Most of the kids that I work with have been really included in their extracurricular activities. There are certain activities that work better than others. As kids get older, it gets really hard sometimes to include them in some of the sports realms. And I think what happens is it gets so competitive, even for typical kids, some, you know, the football and, and baseball and some of those things get so very competitive that it, it gets really, really hard to include them. So as they get older, some of the things we do is look at, try to maybe find sports that are just better suited to them. Karate, mm -hmm. I find is wonderful because it's a lot of focus on bettering yourself. You're, you're trying to get from one belt level to another and you're competing against yourself. So we, we just start tailoring the sport to the kid. Now, when they're younger, it's just about making sure that they can get out there and play with everybody else. But there's some there's just some reality to it that you have to deal with as the kids get older. Not everybody's going to be on that, you know, all-star baseball team. It doesn't matter if you have a disability or not. That's just probably not going to happen. But... Um, but there's other things you can do. And for mm -hmm. kids with kids who are in wheelchairs, you know, you can do wheelchair, you can do wheelchair tennis, wheelchair basketball. There's there's other types of sports and letting them know about the array of things that are out there. Yeah, I think here in Birmingham, uh, we're very fortunate that we have kind of an international stage on that presence there with Lakeshore is, uh, when it comes to the sports. Um, and I would encourage anybody that is interested in, in continuing to play sports, uh, maybe with a wheelchair. They have a very competitive, I watch those guys go at it uh, and girls go at it. And, you know, they have swimming, uh, basketball, those types of things. Now you mentioned at a young age, it's very important just to make sure that <clears throat> individuals, every student, every, every child is able to go out there and continue to play. One thing that you have there at United Ability is a very accessible playground that we were able to see through the window uh, the last time we were there. Um, what's the history behind that? How long ago did you guys put that together? Were you involved in the design of that? Yeah, and we've had that. That's actually our second one. We designed a very similar one when we built our building many years ago. And the and what we did before we built the original playground is we went to a variety of facilities and saw what they had. And we talked to lots of parents of kids with disabilities and we went to a variety of schools and talked to teachers and asked them what they liked and what they didn't like. And then our over, overarching thing we looked at is we wanted to build a facility where kids with where typical kids were not going to congregate and kids with disabilities couldn't get to them. And we wanted it to be fun for everybody. We wanted to have things that were challenging for everybody. So that was kind of our main thing that we looked at. 
And so from there, so our structure, which I wish I had a picture to show people because it's kind of hard to describe. We have a very large ramping system that wraps around to a, a central PlayStation at the top. And then coming off of that, we have a variety of slides and then there's steps. There's a couple steps so that the kids, if you're in a wheelchair or a walker, or if you're crawling, or if you have canes, you can go up the ramp, but there's also steps that you can get up and down quickly and you can go down the slides. So there's many options. If you wanna go quickly and you can, you go up the steps, but the typical kids love running up and down the ramp as well. And, you know, to be, when we were building it, the company that we were using said, well, you don't have to use so much ramping, that costs more. And it's ADA accessible to have transfer points. So you could just have steps and transfer points so that you could just transfer out of your wheelchair. Well, it kids in wheelchairs who are four, the vast majority of them can't just transfer out of their wheelchair and climb up steps. Just the majority of the ones that we had could not do that. So we were tailoring it to our population. So we, that's why we chose the ramping and we didn't use just steps with transfer points because that was not accessible to the population that we had. Now, when and, you say transfer, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, so we just tailored it to our population and it was ended up being more fun for all the kids. Now, when you say transfer points, I'm not familiar with what that looks like. Is that just a place where the wheelchair would stay parked and you, the individual would, how would that work? Yeah, it's like a landing. It's basically a landing at the bottom. So it's just, yeah, it's just a, there would be like maybe one step off the ground and then there'd be a landing. So you could just, it'd be like maybe level with your wheelchair. So you could transfer okay. from the seat of the wheelchair to this, this level, this little square and then you could crawl up the steps. But that's kind of, that's like saying, you know, for somebody that's able-bodied, okay, past this point, you're not able to use your legs, which is right. what individuals in a wheelchair, that that's their mobility. So it's like, okay, we're gonna design this, but yeah. after this transfer point, you don't have access to the rest of it unless you wanna crawl around. Yeah, but it met yeah. the minimum standard. And that's what some of it is about, is the minimum standard and that, it was the cheapest option that met the minimum standard, but yeah. we weren't willing to do that. And that's, to me, that's not fair. You shouldn't have to meet the minimum standard. And it was non-functional for a lot of these kids. Yeah, it seems like they're just kind of checking off a point there. It's like, oh yeah, we kind of made it accessible. We're in regulation now, but it doesn't solve the problem at all. Well, that's now, that's what happens in a lot of circumstances. There, I mean, there's the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And yeah. that happens quite a bit. But, but it's also difficult because as I said before, a two-year-old in a wheelchair and a 90-year-old in a walker are gonna need very different accommodations. And you have this, this federal law that it can't it can't accommodate everybody else with you know with one rule oh i, I like so, how you say that oh, go ahead i'm sorry well so so you really have to have multiple people contributing to this conversation to really make it work for everybody and no matter what it's not going to be perfect it's not going to be perfect and even though 
ADA was signed in 1990. We're 32 years past that. As you mentioned, there's still some things that need to be worked out. We still need the voices of the community to do that. But then I also feel like, um, and Mr. Hornsby here agrees, there should be a standard. Uh, Mr. Hornsby says there should be a standard, not a minimum standard, but something else would be better. Um, and we can have those laws uh, signed in by presidents, but I think when the tire meets the pavement is in your local community. It's at your local school district. It's in your house. It's at your neighbor's house. And so that <clears throat> even though we have the laws, the real work, I think, comes down to, you know, I, I was over in the Hoover Dog Park and I'm very proud. I don't live in Hoover, but I take my dog there and they have a playground there and it has ramps on it. And I tell people about this so accessible. They have a board there that has sign language on it. So kids can learn sign language if there's a person there that is, um, you know, needs to use sign language there. So using, I'm starting to see it more in the community and it's really exciting just working with the disability community. I've been now for almost six years and I'm starting to see these things like, you're, like you say, accessibility uh, in the community. And it's hard not to be excited about that. I took a picture. We're going to share it on our Instagram. <laughs> like, go to Hoover Dog Park and support them. <laughs> but, well, and you know what? I, and I love what you're saying because I agree. I think it, it should be more mainstream. And the work of Culture City as well, making sensory differences more mainstream. You know, you go to the airport and you see the Birmingham airport has a sensory space for people with disabilities. And some of our... <laughs> Our venues have them now because of Culture City. And you see people talking about this and it's not this foreign thing. Well, it should be like that with accessibility also. Everybody should be kind of looking around, making sure that places are accessible, that people with hearing impairment have access to to ways to access, you know, any kind of, you know, concert or any community thing that's going on we should all be looking for that it shouldn't be foreign when you see it it, it should yeah. just be an everyday thing for all of us and it benefits everybody so i watch movies and shows captions on all the time but those captions were created uh, for people that uh, were deaf and they couldn't interact with the media at that point i use it all the time i I don't know anybody that sometimes doesn't read the captions when they're watching a movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I do, especially at late at night. I use the captions all the time if I have the, I like the volume really low because I don't want to wake people up. So yeah, you're right. It helps a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned Culture City. I'm unfamiliar with Culture City. They do a lot of work for um, people with in the autism community and people with sensory differences. Okay. And they do and trainings for um, like for first responders. Gotcha. So if uh, police officers um, or uh, fire department uh, have to go to a house and there's somebody there that has uh, needs some extra care, they're, they're, they'll go and teach those first responders how to interact. Yes. For people who have um, autism or sensory issues, and they are the ones that do the um, sensory kits in some of the, the restaurants. Some restaurants will have a little sign that says we have a sensory kit that has like um, headphones or fidget toys. Culture City will do trainings for the staff and then put those kits in there. And that's also part of being accessible that now that that restaurant is more accessible for a child who has a sensory issue. 
because they have a little sensory kit. And I believe I that said, in order to put that in there, you have to go through their training. I think you're setting us up for a future broadcast with them. Yes, <laughs> I, I talk to them because that that's a great um, organization in our community. And they do work. I believe it's they're starting to do things nationwide as well. They're originally from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, what are some really cool things that you see going on uh, in accessibility, accessibility in general uh, here in the state or even internationally? Well, some things that you're you, really excited about. Well, you, you brought it up, but I think digital accessibility is kind of the, the newest forefront. And yes, we, we, need, we certainly need more work with just regular old physical accessibility in our communities, but um, all the, the digital things going on are opening doors for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. A lot of our, the, the people that we work with use computers to talk, to communicate with the world. And digital accessibility is, is how they're going to do their jobs, do school. It, it's changed the world for them. So we're really going to need to make sure that companies, that all companies are formatting. And I'm not an IT expert, but that's one thing that I'm seeing is there's more frustration from people who are using this format in that a lot of, not every company is formatting things. And it would be so easy if they, on the, on the, as they're creating content, if they would just format it in such a way that it's easily read by their devices. Now, do you and have a, a I, Go ahead. I was, what's one example of correct formatting for devices to read? One of the things that I've read about is um, videos that play automatically are very, very hard for um, some of the devices to read. They, it's, it's hard for them. They can't, I think they can't access it very easily because it's just coming on. And also mm -hmm. pop-ups. They can't, they can't get their cursor to, to go where it needs to go because they have this thing moving on the screen. Yes. I hate pop-ups. I hate videos that play as soon as I get on the website as well. Yeah, those are hard. Those are hard for their devices, but there's whole lists of things that make it hard. And sometimes if you have a um, screen full of content, breaking it up with headers. But there's there's uh, lists of things like that. And that's the kind of the new thing on the forefront is really making sure that companies are formatting in such a way that it's easier for people who are using devices to access. We had someone, we had someone bring to our attention. We have a weekly email that we send out that has the upcoming broadcast for the week, the schedule, and a little bit of background and links. Uh, quick plug, if you guys aren't on our email list, go to alabamacare.org, sign up for the email list, send it out weekly. Um, but we had someone point out that we were we were typing in like 11 font, uh, size font, and it was just too small. And a lot of people that had low vision couldn't really see it. So uh, from that input, we started increasing our size. We put a lot more spaces between our paragraphs uh, and we bold a lot of things. So just taking that input, um, you know, into practice there was, was something that we, we try and do on our end there. Um, so I agree. So the last like 50, 60 years have really kind of revolutionized through technology, 
what uh, individuals are able to do. I don't know if you have TikTok, but I use TikTok sometimes. There is a content creator on there who um, he's in his bed. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what his disabilities are, but um, he <clears throat> is able to DJ just from his, he's, he's got like a hospital bed and he sets his camera up and he's laying down in his bed, he sets it up above his bed and he's got all his DJ stuff right there around him. He's totally created this space for him. You know, he's got tens of thousands of people that me, I'm one of them that log in just to watch this dude create some music. Like this dude is getting it. I love it. But it's, it's, see how technology's kind of opened up his world. Not only has he got friends, he probably has an income stream as well. So it's, yeah, no, it, there's all this positive, but now we also need to remove barriers on this new forefront for the rest of mm -hmm. the people. And another thing in that realm is we need the cost to come down because some of the devices that these people are using are very, very expensive. So we need the cost to come down. We need to be it to be accessible for everybody financially. Yeah, I had, so I have a family member and I had somebody from ADRS come out and do an evaluation for a new communication device. Uh, she's got an old tech talk. We're thinking about moving into the iPad space. And she was like, well, you know, we could try and get this under insurance. It's going to take a few months. Um, and then if it does get covered, but I just, let you know, like if you were to try and get this out of pocket from one of these manufacturers, it's crazy expensive, you know, thousands of dollars. And I just looked at it and go, I'm just going to buy an iPad for my family member, <laughs> you know, and then I'll purchase the app. Uh, I'm just going to get a regular iPad. So I agree. I don't understand why so sometimes these pieces of equipment are, I've heard up to $30,000, you know, for some types of equipment. It's just astronomical. And that's a huge barrier. That's a financial barrier for a lot of individuals and families who's got an extra 30 grand sitting around just to get, um, you know, a new communication device. Uh, and the I'm technology's very... changing. So you might need it now, then in five years, it's obsolete. You need another one. Is insurance going to buy another one for you then? I, I don't know about that. We're just going with the iPad. Um, yeah. I'm going to acknowledge chat really quick. Uh, Paige Perry says, uh, Michelle Kong, you and Julian need to get with Alvin Care to talk about the work and resources of Culture City. Um, uh, Mr. Perry, appreciate that. I'll follow up on that. Uh, David Berry says, in addition, Helena's chief of police, Brad Flynn, leads law enforcement seminars all over the nation. He is amazing <clears throat> and works closely with United Ability and Culture City. Now, you guys are just throwing out these ideas. You guys are creating our whole content for August here. <clears throat> Paige Perry, what resources are available for helping people learn to use new technologies in their homes and in their communities to allow better access for them. Uh, yeah, for um, digital technology. <clears throat> I'll read it. Um, it doesn't say specifically uh, what resources are available for helping people learn <clears throat> to use new technologies in their home and in their communities to allow better access for them. So maybe just I would a general. Probably start off. CRS for, for kids, maybe Children's Rehab Service or, or Alabama Department of Rehab Services for people in Alabama. I would start with their website. They used to have a STAR program that had a technology component that helped people with technology. And they had rehab specialists in that, um, in that program that would help families. Yeah, the, actually we were- um, I would recommend that STAR program as well. So if you're looking at, um, you know, equipment or wheelchairs, anything like that, 
um, is kind of a buy back program, I believe, that um, is the STAR program. You can look up uh, Alabama Care STAR program on YouTube and should be able to find that uh, broadcast there. It was really cool. They have a ton of equipment that they can either lend out or I think you guys can purchase. Um, they will also you know, take back some equipment if you're not using it. Uh, so we can link but that I think there there's well. a, they have kind of experts with technology, I believe. But I would go, if you go on the Alabama Department of Rehab Services website, you would probably find some more information on technology. And I think that might be able to help you learn about how to use technology. That At least I would start there. I think they could direct you to the right place. Yeah, and as I mentioned, we had someone from ADRS come out last week uh, for my family member that was doing a consultation on technology. So they are there to help you. Um, you know, please reach out. Karen um, uh, Baggett um, was the one that came out and helped us there. So, um, Jonathan Hornsby, stamp special special needs on a product, and they think they can charge fifty percent more or something. I'm sure which, you see inflation quite a bit. Which that's true. I mean, anything that's marketed specially for people with special needs costs a whole lot more. And that's why I think we need things to be just for everybody. We need everything to be kind of accessible in all realms for everybody. And then hopefully the prices will come down. Well, that's what, and that's what's great about iPads. You know, a lot of um, the iPads are used in general for communication for all kinds of people and it's it's just cheaper it's you know it's whatever price it is so um i'm, I'm hoping that will help as as we're all using all of these things that the prices will will normalize a little bit but he's right it's it's much more expensive if i if i buy a little bitty bench it's you know hundred dollars if i say it's a bench for kids with special needs it's five hundred dollars yeah as, I feel like that's price gouging those less fortunate. Um, and uh, that's like when the pandemic first started, everybody, you hear about those yahoos that went out and bought all the toilet paper from Costco or something and then tried to charge <laughs> yeah. more for the hand sanitizer. It's like, get out of here, guys. You know, we're neighbors here. You're supposed to help everybody, not price gouge. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, it, that reminds me of Moore's Law, too. So Moore's Law says that our technology doubles every 18 months. Uh, it, which basically means that our phones get twice as fast every 18 months and half the size. And so as long as that keeps happening and we don't see any slowing down currently, uh, your gadgets will become uh, less and less expensive over time. So, um, well, as we kind of uh, wrap it up here, <clears throat> uh, we always like to say, are there any upcoming events, anything going on that you would recommend uh, individuals or parents, family members get involved in, attend, whether that's a Zoom meeting, in-person meeting at United Ability, um, or any uh, videos that you really, really like, anything you like to shout out there. Well, we have our Journey of Hope on August 20th, which is a, a big event that we have at Red Mountain Theater. So that's our next big thing coming up for us. What exactly is that? Well, we have, we honor, we have a, um, an honoree every year and we also have kind of world-class entertainment. And the last, I think four years, the entertainer has been someone with a disability. And um, 
David would have to tell me who that is. I can't remember who it is this year, but um, he might, maybe he'll chime in and let you know who our entertainer is, but it's always world, uh, I mean, fantastic. They blow you away every time, the entertainment, but it's fabulous entertainment. Now, is this something where yeah, people are getting together for just like food trucks, activities, some live entertainment? No, it, it's an it's an event where we, they, I mean, they have, it's entertainment, but they do speeches and they honor, they have somebody that is honored at this event. Okay. I and they, they do speeches for that person, but it's a lot about the um, the entertainment as well. The, per, the, the person who's singing or entertaining the the um the crowd that's there august 20th market on the calendar <coughs> and it's sorry, at guys. red mountain theater which is a fabulous space if you've never been there i haven't i need to check it out this is a good um excuse to get over it would there. be a great party. excuse for you to to come and meet with us it's it's wonderful and there uh there'll be a silent auction i believe okay get to throw some money around never know what you're yeah. gonna get <clears throat> um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that um, you know, individual or a family member specifically about accessibility that uh, you think that could, they could benefit from hearing? I don't think so. I just want to reiterate to, to get involved. And I loved your idea of sending videos, but definitely stories, but videos to people who do have the power to make the changes. Um, quick question here. Uh, Paige Perry says, how accessible is the new Red Mountain Theater building? I know um, Alice Stevens Center has wheelchair seating separate from um, Paige. I'm not sure about it, but I imagine if United Ability is holding their event there, they are going to be very accessible, especially if the honorees uh, may need uh, you know, ramps and stuff like that. So I would have to say that Red Mountain Theater is, is accessible. It should be. I, I went there last year. I didn't see any problem it's a brand new building as well it was opened i believe during covid and i didn't now granted i'm one person but i did not notice any glaring issues it looked really good when i was there it was, it, it looked fabulous when i was there yeah i imagine that you know if you've been there and nothing kind of stood out as unaccessible and united ability uh page Perry, these guys are on top of this stuff uh so Imagine that. David Berry says, uh, Brianna, I'm going to butcher this last name. Colicchio is the entertainment for Journey of Hope. She is a young lady with cystic fibrosis. Uh, so you guys can do a little bit of digging on Brianna. Uh, I'll have to see what's there. But um, Mrs. Delgado, I want to say thank you for giving us some of your time this afternoon on this historic day, the signing of the ADA 32 years ago. Um, and sharing more about accessible and how individuals and families can continue uh, the fight. Like you said, it's not you know we have some laws that are great building blocks, but that doesn't mean that everything's perfect and uh, the fight is done. So keep going, get uh, in touch with your representatives, let your voice be known, and hopefully see you guys on August twentieth at the Red Mountain Theater for the Journey of Hope with United Ability. Mrs. Delgado, appreciate it again. At this time, we'll kind of give a wave to our camera and we will say, see you guys next week.